Let us open the precious Word of God to the 45th Psalm. Psalm 45. Our brother Paul would tell us in 1 Corinthians chapter 2 and verse 2, I determined not to know anything among you, save Jesus Christ and Him crucified. He would say again in Galatians chapter 6 and verse 14, But God forbid that I should glory, save in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ. There is nothing that should excite us more than the person of the Lord Jesus Christ and all that the Bible has to witness of Him. Jesus Himself told the Jews who trusted in their printed Bibles, Search the Scriptures, for in them ye think ye have eternal life, and they are they which testify of me. And so we want to see the Lord Jesus Christ everywhere that we can in Scripture. We want to consider every aspect of Him and delight ourselves in Him. Psalm 45 was a starting point several weeks ago when I began this series about the glories of Jesus Christ. Psalm 45 is about the Lord Jesus Christ. It's quoted by the Apostle Paul in Hebrews chapter 1. It cannot fit David and it cannot fit Solomon. It only fits the son of David and the one that is greater than Solomon. I only want two verses, if I can stop with two, from the beginning of this psalm. It's a song of loves. It is an abbreviated form of the Song of Solomon. If you have a superscription over this psalm, it says it's a song of loves. My heart is indicting a good matter. I speak of the things which I have made touching the king. My tongue is the pen of a ready writer. Thou art fairer than the children of men. Grace is poured into thy lips. Therefore God hath blessed thee forever. Gird thy sword upon thy thigh, O most mighty, with thy glory and thy majesty. And in thy majesty ride prosperously because of truth and meekness and righteousness. And thy right hand shall teach thee terrible things. Thine arrows are sharp in the heart of the king's enemies, whereby the people fall under thee. Thy throne, O God, is forever and ever. The scepter of thy kingdom is a right scepter. Thou lovest righteousness and hatest wickedness. Therefore God, thy God, hath anointed thee with the oil of gladness, above thy fellows. All thy garments smell of myrrh and aloes and cassia out of the ivory palaces, whereby they have made thee glad. We can stop there. This is a description of the Lord Jesus Christ, your Savior, my Savior, your Lord, my Lord, the head of this church, the bishop of our souls, the great shepherd of the sheep, Our high priest, our apostle, he is everything. And we want to think upon a psalm like this as a good matter. My heart is indicting a good matter. That's the doctrine of inspiration. 
David's heart was dictating words to him, and his pen was the pen of a ready writer, ready to take from his heart the words that God had given him, and we have them in writing, and they're about the Lord Jesus Christ. I spent 85 sermons getting us through the first half of the book of Romans. We plumbed its depths from the first chapter to the eighth chapter. It brought us to Romans chapter 8 and the 32nd verse. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not also with him freely give us all things? If God gave the gift of his son Jesus for the elect, they shall surely receive all things. Whomever God gave his son for shall surely receive all things. Because God would not give His Son without giving everything that came with His Son. And that's everlasting life. Romans 8.32. Romans 8.35. Who shall separate us from the love of Christ? Shall tribulation? Shall distress? Shall persecutions? Nay! In all these things, we are more than conquerors. Because of Him who loved us, the Lord Jesus Christ. I am persuaded that neither death, nor life, nor angels, nor principalities, nor anything else can separate us from the love of God, which is where? In Christ Jesus our Lord. Psalm 45, 2a said, Thou art fairer than the children of men. We want to compare the Lord Jesus Christ to the ideal man by as many measures as God will show us so that we can see that Jesus is infinitely greater. Amen. Let me take up this one for a few minutes. Handsome. Handsome. Am I being trite to bring up the word handsome? Does the Bible say to worship God in the beauty of holiness? Does the Bible give us a description of the appearance of Jesus of Nazareth in his humiliation? Be careful. Does the Bible give us a description of the physical attributes and appearance of Jesus of Nazareth in his humiliation? Oh, that he's ugly. Is that what you're referring to? Isaiah 52, thank you, brother, we're going there. That's not exactly the line of reasoning that I thought, but Matthew's being thorough. It doesn't tell us the details of what color eyes he had or what color hair he had. It leaves us Without that. And God tells us why in the Old Testament. He had made that decision way before He created Adam and Eve. That He would never let them see God or a thing that they could call God because then they would build idols to look like that. He said, you're going to deal with me according to my word, not according to statues like the Roman Catholic Church does or pictures of Michelangelo, that Michelangelo painted on the ceiling of the Sistine Chapel. But did the, does the Bible give us the physical attributes and a description of Jesus Christ glorified? Oh, yeah. Yes, it does. Do you know the color of his eyes? You do. Do you know the color of his hair? You do. You do not know the color of his eyes or of his hair when he was here on earth in his humiliation. Because God left that part of the Bible blank for us, and so when Roman Catholics try to paint a John Lennon looking kind of a guy, that is entirely by the imagination of their heads 
influenced by the devil himself that would create such an effeminate, wicked, ungodly, despicable image as that long-haired fairy standing in a garden. Jesus never looked like that. He never had long hair like that. The Bible says it is a shame for a man to have long hair. And there's one thing Jesus of Nazareth would never do, and it would be a thing to shame his Father in heaven. Never. It's terrible that Baptists will allow that picture in their churches, on their keychains, or in their houses, when it's a picture of the devil's caricature of the Lord Jesus Christ. He didn't look like that. But we have a picture of him, and we're going to work our way toward it. A great man. We want to we want to think about a man that is incredibly handsome. A great man that's very attractive and good-looking. Any breathing woman would rather have a handsome, good-looking man than an ugly duckling. Remember, thou art fairer than the children of men. Remember, he is the chiefest among ten thousand. So for a moment, let's think of appearance because the Bible wants you to think about appearance because the Bible identifies his appearance in his glorified state and tells you what he looks like. The more desirable or popular a girl, which gives her selection power, is going to choose the best looking guy she can. A handsome man, by his appearance, his presence, and his attention, can move a woman to affection toward him. A very handsome guy, think about whatever attributes you want to of his appearance, whether it's the tall, dark, and handsome, short idiom that we have in our nation, or whatever is in your mind, by his appearance, his presence, and his attention to a woman can move her to affection. I want you to remember what the Bible says in Song of Solomon 5, which I'm not turning you to it, when the woman there, the wife or the bride or the church, is describing her husband, she goes into detail about his different parts. You know, his legs are like pillars. And uh, his eyes and his lips and his cheeks. She describes him in detail. In Genesis chapter 39 and verse 6, we find out that Joseph was a man that was well favored from the Lord. We find out that David in 1 Samuel chapter 16 was very ruddy and of a beautiful countenance. We find in uh, Acts chapter 7 that Moses was very fair and well favored of the Lord. But what of Jesus Christ? Isaiah 53 is, Isaiah 52, 3 is the passage that, uh, Matthew was referring to, and let's turn there for a moment. Isaiah 53. The Bible tells us that in his humiliation, in order, For his followers to only follow him due to their faith by the power of God, he was not attractive. Isaiah chapter 53 and verse 2. For he, speaking of the Lord Jesus Christ, shall grow up before him, speaking of the Lord Jehovah his Father, as a tender plant and as a root out of a dry ground. He hath no form nor comeliness. And when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. In his humiliation, and this is, this is further condescension, isn't it? When we think of the Lord of glory condescending to be a servant, he didn't condescend to be a servant like Joseph that was well favored and very attractive to look at. There was no former comeliness in his physical appearance. Naturally speaking, naturally speaking, Jesus Christ was not attractive. Spiritually speaking, 
And considering character, he was incredibly attractive even on earth in his humiliation. But notice what the Bible says. He hath no form nor comeliness, and when we shall see him, there is no beauty that we should desire him. Because see, beauty in a man should provoke desire. Beauty in a man should provoke desire in a woman's heart. The woman married to an attractive man, and if you're not married to an attractive man, then you need to make him an attractive man in your heart. Just like he has to make you an attractive wife in his heart. There is no beauty that we should desire him. But what of Christ? I take you now to Revelation chapter 1, and I'll show you what he looks like. And this, these are descriptions that the Bible wants you to have. This is God wanting you to know what his son Jesus looks like. And he does tell you his eye color, and he does tell you his hair color, and he does tell you what he looks like, and he tells you what his feet look like. And those details are given here, but those details are not given about him in his humiliation. It is so, it is so hard, and it is part of gospel preaching that preachers need to reach into your heart and mind and pull down every stronghold that has been set up by Catholic influence in our thinking. That long-haired Jesus is not the Jesus of God. He is nothing like him at all. Charles Manson and John Lennon combined do not make the Lord Jesus Christ. And that long-haired freak, that hippie, that effeminate hippie that so many adore as their Savior is the other Jesus spoken of in 2 Corinthians 11, 3 and 4. There's another Jesus, another gospel, and another spirit. And they can have it. We want the one of the Bible. And here's what the Bible says about him. I was in the Spirit on the Lord's day in verse 10 and heard behind me a great voice as of a trumpet. Do you want to know how the Lord Jesus Christ sounds? He sounds clear and distinct like the notes of a trumpet. Verse 12, I turned to see the voice that spake with me. And being turned, I saw seven golden candlesticks. That's you, my brethren. Those are the churches of the Lord Jesus Christ. And in the midst of the seven candlesticks, one like unto the Son of Man, clothed with a garment down to the foot, and girt about the paps with a golden girdle. His head and his hairs were white like wool, as white as snow. And his eyes were as a flame of fire, and his feet like undefined brass, as if they burned in a furnace, and his voice as the sound of many waters. And he had in his right hand seven stars, and out of his mouth went a sharp two-edged sword, and his countenance was as the sun shineth in his strength. That picture that we are given here of the Lord Jesus Christ glorified puts in the shade every imaginable appearance that a man could have. You take your tall, dark, and handsome John Travolta and put him next to this and see what he looks like. He looks like scum. This is the Lord Jesus Christ, and these details are shared with us 
by John's pen so that we can know what our glorified Savior looks like. Now a woman that has a good-looking man, she has desire cultivated in her heart because of his appearance. Remember, there is no beauty that we should desire him because beauty should cause desire. And beauty also causes pride. When you have a good-looking spouse and you're able to go into public, you know that you have a good-looking spouse for others to see. Now are you ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ if we take Him by this measure alone? Are you ever ashamed of the Lord Jesus Christ? Are you afraid to speak His name? You know, I would be afraid to speak His name if my Jesus was that long-haired John Lennon standing in some garden begging. My Jesus is this Jesus, and He says He opens and no man shuts, and when He shuts, no man opens. In the same book. Do you delight in the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ? Here's a description of His beauty. Doesn't it move you to great pleasure? This is your Lord. This is your husband. This trumpet sound, burning brass feet, eyes as a flame of fire, golden girdle, around white hair and white face, shining with the strength of the sun, is your husband. Can you run to him and delight in him? Can you pray in his name? Do you love to sing his praise? Do you want to run and grab those burning brass feet and have him do this to you? Verse 17, when I saw him, I fell at his feet as dead, and he laid his right hand upon me, saying unto me, Fear not, I am the first and the last. I am he that liveth and was dead, and behold, I am alive forevermore. Amen, he said to himself, and have the keys of hell and of death. Write the things that I'm going to show you, my brother John. My beloved son John, write the things I'm going to show you. And so we have the relationship that's tender because that glorious Christ could condescend to man and he condescended to the Apostle John. Would you be ashamed to be his bride? Would you be ashamed to come down the aisle, as it were, for your understanding with the Lord Jesus Christ waiting to receive you? What a Savior. He gives us these little details. Look at chapter 19 just to see a couple more verses about what He appears to be. If we were ever going to have a painting of the Lord Jesus Christ, it would be from this book, not from some Catholic bookstore. It's amazing what people think of the Lord Jesus. Amazing what the, what the devil has done to corrupt the mental picture that people have that's totally wrong. That long-haired, effeminate freak that they have in their pictures, he couldn't sit down and make himself a scourge out of leather cords with a handle if he wanted to. He couldn't stand up and have sweat beat up on his forehead as he kicked over tables and drove money changers out of the temple. But that was the son of David, the Lord Jesus Christ. That guy in those pictures needs a blood transfusion. Verse 11 of Revelation 19, I saw heaven opened. See, you and I haven't been there yet. But John saw heaven opened, and the Lord Jesus told him to write a few things down so that we can have a a little visual idea of what the glory of that place is like. I saw heaven opened, and behold, a white horse, 
And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true. How's that for a husband? We're going to get to those words. Do you want a husband that's faithful and true? I saw heaven open, and behold, a white horse. And he that sat upon him was called faithful and true, and in righteousness he doth judge and make war. That guy in the Catholic pictures couldn't make war. I can't even say it in the same sentence. That guy couldn't go to war if he had to. He wouldn't even know how to fight in any way, shape, or form. His eyes were as a flame of fire. See, it's the same eye color as from chapter 1. And on his head were many crowns. And he had a name written that no man knew but he himself. And he was clothed with a vesture dipped in blood. And his name is called the Word of God. And the armies which were in heaven followed him upon white horses, clothed in fine linen, white and clean. That is you. And out of his mouth goeth that sharp sword, that with it he should smite the nations and rule them with the rod of iron, and so forth and so on. And on his thigh he had a name written, King of kings and Lord of lords. Amen. He is handsome. He's altogether lovely in every respect. Even when we think about the appearance of the Lord Jesus Christ, which you might think is not spiritual enough to consider in a sermon, but God considered it spiritual enough to put in his Bible in Revelation 1 and 19 that his appearance should make you awestruck and fill you with desire for him because he is gloriously handsome and beautiful as the husband of his church. And when you're terrified, he is able to reach down and touch you and say, fear not. I was dead, but I'm alive now. And yes, John, I look a little different than I did at the Last Supper. But write the things that I'm going to show you and what a friend the Lord Jesus Christ was to John to show him all the things that he did. Amen. If we had a husband that was infinite, like we're trying to compare our Lord Jesus Christ to, we would want him to be merciful. Consider mercy with me for a few minutes. A great man, a great man, a great perfect man, has a very forgiving and pardoning spirit when you fail his expectations. Great men, whether it's a great boss, a great father, like as a father pitieth his children, is merciful. Is the Lord Jesus Christ merciful? Well, let's keep considering about a woman being married to a man. She wants a merciful husband. Every honest and sincere wife knows she fails her husband often. And she's blessed that has a merciful husband. The greater the husband, the greater the distance there is between the husband's expectations and the wife's abilities. So remember, we're talking about a perfect husband because the Lord Jesus Christ is a perfect husband. But the greater the distance between the husband and the wife, the greater the distance between expectations and abilities. If a wife were to fail a husband like that, or we should say, a wife's going to fail a husband like that, he better be merciful. And he's our husband. And he's so infinitely greater than we are, he needs to be merciful. And does the Bible present the Lord Jesus Christ as being merciful or not? The Bible tells husbands, husbands, likewise ye husbands, dwell with them according to knowledge, giving honor unto the wife, as unto the weaker vessel. Now, if the Bible tells us to honor our wives as the weaker vessel, do you think the Lord Jesus Christ just might 
be able and will he honor the weaker vessel? Oh yes. If he asks it of us, then he's going to be the great example of it by being merciful to us and honoring us as the weaker vessel. If the Bible says that what doth the Lord require of thee, O man, but to love mercy. If the Bible says that instead of 10,000 rivers of oil and instead of giving your firstborn to God, you are merciful and you love mercy, that that is pleasing in His sight, then who do you think is going to be greatest in mercy? The God of heaven Himself and the Lord Jesus Christ, who is the express image of the invisible God. So the Lord Jesus Christ, our husband, is merciful. We can run to Him at any time. He will forgive our failures. He pities our weaknesses. We can confess our sins and He forgives them so easily. He embraces us again after our failures and sins. Because He's merciful. And He loves mercy. Look at Hebrews 4. This great Lord Jesus Christ, so handsome and glorious in His appearance... Look what it says about him in the last verse of the fourth chapter of Hebrews. And this is the effect it ought to have upon us. When we think about our Lord Jesus, we want to think of him high and lifted up, sitting on a throne like Isaiah saw him in Isaiah 6, or high and lifted up in his appearance like chapter 1 and chapter 19 of Revelation. But when we get him up that high and that glorious, and John knew him well, and John fell at his feet as dead, We're going to be intimidated and threatened by Him unless we understand one of His attributes is mercy. Mercy. And more mercy. Hebrews 4.16, verse 15 has told us that we have a high priest, which there's two, there's a double negative in there. There's a high, we have a high priest that is touched with the feeling of our infirmities but was in all points tempted like as we are, yet without sin. Let us therefore, let us therefore come boldly unto the throne of grace, that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. A great man that was a king in our, in our created fairest of men, if a great man that was a king married a poor woman, You know, she's going to fail him almost every time. She won't know how to entertain guests. She won't know how to relate to him. She won't have the experience he has. She won't have the vocabulary he has. She is going to be one utter disappointment to him. We we would be one utter disappointment to God if it were not for all the attributes of the Lord Jesus Christ that make us beautiful in His sight. And part of it is mercy. And you fail Him every day, and I fail Him every day, but He is merciful. And we want to remember that mercy so that we can come boldly under the throne of grace. If a wife knows that she has seriously disappointed or offended or failed her husband, she is, there's going to be a temptation to hide and avoid it and hope that that thing is not discovered and that that subject does not come up. But see, we disappoint and fail and offend our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ, and yet the verse tells us we can go boldly to him and be forgiven. Therefore, come boldly under the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in time of need. Oh, the Lord was so pitiful and merciful toward Job, He gave him twice of all he had in the end. 
And the Bible wants you to know that it was the tender mercies of God toward Job that did that. Because Job lost it. You know, for two chapters, Job held out strong. But from chapter 3 on, Job lost it, got a little self-righteous, wanted God to come down and let's, let's deal with this face-to-face here because I'm going to tell you I'm a good man and it's not right what you're doing to me. Oh, but isn't the Lord merciful? He sends Elihu along to correct the whole situation. And in the end, he gives Job twice of everything he had. Is that mercy? After Job got rather mouthy with the Lord for about 29 chapters. Look at 1 Timothy chapter 1. Our brother Paul knew this. He knew it well. And and Paul's life is set forth as an example for all of us. 1 Timothy chapter 1, verse 12. I thank Christ Jesus our Lord, who hath enabled me, for that he counted me faithful, putting me into the ministry, who was before a blasphemer and a persecutor and injurious, but I obtained mercy, because I did it ignorantly in unbelief. And the grace of our Lord was exceeding abundant with faith and love, which is in Christ Jesus. The Apostle Paul was put into the ministry because God was merciful to his ignorance of unbelief. He didn't know, wasn't convinced yet, hadn't been converted, that Jesus of Nazareth was the promised Messiah of the Old Testaments. Even while he was persecuting the church, he was doing it out of zeal toward God because he thought he was opposing a blasphemer and a heretic against God's religion until he met Jesus of Nazareth on the road to Damascus. But notice, God had already counted him faithful because with Paul's body of knowledge, Paul was faithful. God put Paul in the ministry because he was so faithful persecuting the church. Because he persecuted the church because he thought Jesus Christ was an imposter. But anyway, no more on that at this time. I want you to notice the word mercy. I obtain mercy in the 13th verse. And then he draws from himself to you. This is a faithful saying, and worthy of all acceptation, that Christ Jesus came into the world to save sinners, of whom I am chief. How be it? For this cause I obtained mercy. He told you in verse 13 that he obtained mercy. Now he's going to tell you why Saul of Tarsus, the greatest enemy of Jesus Christ, was picked by Jesus Christ to be his apostle. Howbeit for this cause I obtained mercy, that in me first Jesus Christ might show forth all longsuffering for a pattern to them which should hereafter believe on him to life everlasting. Every believer can go look at the life of Paul and realize if Jesus Christ could forgive Paul, and if Paul could obtain mercy, I can obtain mercy. So, let us go boldly to the throne of grace to obtain that mercy. If we confess our sins, He is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. Whether it was harlots in Luke chapter 7, in the house of Simon the Pharisee, where he had his friends, and they would have been his best friends assembled, and a sinful woman from the city came in, who did Jesus befriend? And defend the sinful woman. She obtained mercy at the feet of the Lord Jesus Christ, kissing them, washing them with her tears, and drying them with the hairs of her head. Zacchaeus, 
obtained mercy. He popped down out of that sycamore tree and the whole crowd groaned and mourned and grieved because they knew he would, had been a publican that had collected more than the Rome had required. And he was converted right there in the spot. He obtained mercy from the Lord Jesus Christ, who out of that whole assembly, the assembly was so great that was following Jesus, Nicodemus knew he had to get into a sycamore tree to even see him pass by. But out of that great crowd, the Lord Jesus called Nicodemus, uh, Zacchaeus down and went to his house for supper. That's how merciful the Lord Jesus Christ is. Look at Isaiah 55, and I know that most of you know this, but I've got to make sure that every one of you know it. Isaiah 55. This passage, Lord, forgive me forever preaching these verses wrong, ever believing them the wrong way without understanding their context and appreciating it. Isaiah 55, verse 6, Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Here we have this husband that is so glorious, like we had described in the first chapter of Revelation. We have this great Lord Jesus Christ that we ought to be living for every day. When we sin, do we, do we hide in terror like Adam did in the trees of the garden? That's the fear of God that God hates. That's the fear of God that devils have. We should run to Him and confess our sins. That's what verse 6 is referring to. Seek ye the Lord while he may be found. Call ye upon him while he is near. Let the wicked forsake his way, and the unrighteous man his thoughts. (coughs) And let him return unto the Lord, and he will have mercy upon him, and to our God, for he will abundantly pardon. Now that is hard to believe. If you have sinned and if you have been wicked... The thing you should do is not hide in the trees of the garden, and when God finds you, blame it on someone else. Adam blamed it on Eve. Eve blamed it on the devil, so there was a blame game. Instead, you should run out into that pathway in the garden and fall at the burning brass feet of the Lord Jesus Christ and confess your sins. He will reach down and touch you and lift you up and say, Thy sins are forgiven thee. Go in peace. (coughs) He will abundantly pardon He will have mercy, are the last couple clauses of verse 7. Four. See, we don't think that way. When somebody sins wickedly against us, we're going to get our pound of flesh out of them. That's what our our natural man, our old man says and thinks. That's what the world thinks and does. Four. Verse 8. My thoughts are not your thoughts, neither are your ways my ways, saith the Lord. For as the heavens are higher than the earth, so are my ways higher than your ways, and my thoughts than your thoughts. You might think that you have sinned so much that God isn't going to forgive you easily, and He's not going to abundantly pardon you. You might think that pardon is going to come slow and thin. Because that's the way it would come from anyone here on earth. But my ways and my thoughts of doing things in the way of forgiveness, are not like your ways and thoughts. As high as the heaven is above the earth, and you can't measure it, so great are my ways and thoughts better than your ways and thoughts. This is not describing intelligence. This is describing mercy. This is describing pardon. This is describing forgiveness. We don't go to Isaiah 55, and young men, hear me. 
Don't you go to Isaiah 55 in the future and try to teach God's omniscience or His intelligence from this passage because His ways and thoughts are higher than your ways and thoughts. You go to this passage because His forgiveness, His mercy, His pardon is as high as the heaven is above your forgiveness, mercy, and pardon. And so while you may be thinking, I'm afraid to go, because other men might not forgive you too easily, you can run to the Lord Jesus Christ. This is our husband. He says, I am like no other husband. The difference between me and the next best husband is the distance between heaven and earth. In the way that I love my spouse. In the way that I forgive her. In the way that I pardon her when she fails. How often do we fail our husband, the Lord Jesus Christ? Often. Does he remember our frame? Does he know that we're dust? Has he taken care of our sins forever? Turn to Psalm 103 and let's comfort ourselves there as we try to draw this thing to a close. I love Isaiah 55. Thank you, Lord, for forgiving my ignorance of preaching it many years ago to prove your omniscience and intelligence. Thank you for letting me see the abundant pardon that is taught there. Amen. Wives, you disappoint your husbands in the flesh. And your husbands in the flesh don't have very high standards. Sometimes they're higher than they should be. <clears throat> but the Lord Jesus Christ has a standard of holiness and righteousness for himself that is infinitely above us, how in the world will we ever relate to Him and how will we ever approach Him when we have disappointed Him, failed Him, sinned against Him? How will we do it? You know that when you have disappointed your husband, there's that fear of his disappointment, his anger, whatever. And it's a balance of you being properly fearful of Him because you haven't done what you should have done. And it's a proper balance of Him being merciful and remembering that you are the weaker vessel. And so a marriage can get along just fine. But what about us with the Lord Jesus Christ? We never measure up. Never. We fail Him so often. Here's what He tells us. Verse 10, He hath not dealt with us after our sins. I like that. Amen. There would be a vacuum on planet earth if he dealt with me after my sins. There would be a vacuum here and I would be filling a space in hell. He hath not dealt with us after our sins, nor rewarded us according to our iniquities. For as the heaven is high above the earth, so great is his mercy toward them that fear him. Run to him, brethren. Run to him, sinners. Run to him and fall at his feet and confess your sins. He'll lift you up and say, Thy sins be forgiven thee. Go in peace. As far as the east is from the west, so far hath he removed our transgressions from us. How far is that? It's a long way. You can't measure it. That's how far he's put our sins away from us. Like as a father pitieth his children, 
So the Lord pitieth them that fear Him. If we fear the Lord and He knows that we love Him, He remembers that we have in these bodies the principle of sin that still pulls us down and causes us to say things, think things, and do things that are displeasing to our husband. He knows that. If you fear Him, that means you want to please Him and you have reverence for Him and you love Him. He pities you. He remembers that condition about you just like a good father recognizes that a five-year-old cannot do what a 15-year-old can do. And like a good father would recognize the great difference between a five and a 15-year-old, so the Lord recognizes that we cannot measure up to His standard of holiness and righteousness, and He has mercy. Verse 14, For He knoweth our frame, He remembereth that we are dust. This is one of my favorite sections of Scripture to use in prayer to the Lord, to remind Him of what He has said here, to pity me and remember my frame that I've still got sin in this body. Because the Lord Jesus Christ was tempted in all points like as we are. He knows the temptations we face. He never sinned. We sin often. But He remembers that. And He forgives us when we come to Him. And He lets us start all over again. And I've taught you that as long as I've known you. Jesus loves losers, and we can start over again every day. Because of the shed blood of Jesus Christ. We get to start over. And we get to start over. And a what you know, if a wife knew that she could start over every day with a clean slate, that her husband is never going to bring up what she failed him in the past, that'd be a great comfort. But we get to do that with the Lord. Some of you women are smiling. We get to do that with the Lord. Thank you, Heavenly Father. Do you know what in His covenant He says their sins and iniquities? Will I remember no more? Is that mercy? That is mercy, the likes of which we do not know. It is different from our ways, and it is different from our thoughts. Heavenly Father, thank you for your mercy toward us through Jesus Christ. My brethren, the beauty of the Lord Jesus Christ is the Lord of glory, the King of kings, and Lord of lords, faithful and true, the Word of God that was described in Revelation 1 and 19. But that Lord Jesus Christ, who shed His blood for us while He was on earth, is full of mercy. You cannot exceed His mercy. Greater than all my sins. No matter how black your sins are, and they are black, His mercy is greater. Where sin abounded, grace or mercy did much more abound. Run to Him. You can talk with Him every day. You can, if don't, don't listen to that voice that says to you, but you failed Him. You failed Him. You failed Him. You sin so much. He doesn't have any regard for you. You're nothing in His sight. You little stinking failure. You little spiritual scumbag. Don't, you know where that voice is coming from? That isn't the Holy Spirit convicting you. That is the devil trying to destroy your faith. Your faith should run to the Lord Jesus Christ. He will abundantly pardon. And if you say to me, it couldn't be. Well, that's because you can't abundantly pardon like he can. That's why you're thinking about limiting the Lord Jesus Christ to this big when his mercy is this big. Run to him. Why am I preaching this? I'm telling you why, because I love the Lord Jesus Christ, and that's why I'll preach it. But I'm also preaching it because I want you to run to the Lord Jesus Christ when you sin and know that you can walk with Him every day and every time you fail. 
This husband will never hold it over you, beat you with it, and bring it up again. He will forgive you because he's faithful and just. He has put those sins away forever. He loves you and he has made you beautiful. He is merciful. And you can go boldly to his throne of grace where he sits after the evening meal. Whatever picture you need in your mind, I have the picture in the Garden of Eden where he's walking in the cool of the evening. And instead of hiding in those trees... And knowing that we have failed our Creator, you can run to His feet and be forgiven and lifted up. And let's go on, my brother. Because He's not ashamed of us. And there's plenty of mercy with the Lord. He is beautiful. And though that beauty may be a little intimidating, as we look at that picture, and it did cause John to fall at his feet as dead, He is merciful. And He abundantly pardons our sins. So we can live for Him, walk with Him, and serve from every day of our lives. May Jesus Christ be praised.